Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, where you can hear classic recorded messages from Kimber Kaufman. Throughout these messages, Kimber faithfully follows the text to deliver God's message and to practically apply it to life. The God of the Bible doesn't get coaxed into anything. He's not a helpless God that needs to be coddled and, and protected and sustained by his worshipers. No, not at all. We trust you will enjoy listening to these classic recordings. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the Word, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Now, maybe you're not familiar with the contents of 1 Samuel 5 and 6. Let's pick up as to what is going on. First off, just to give you a, a, a grip of what is happening in, in Israel, here is the land of Israel. Here's the Mediterranean Sea, there's the Dead Sea, there's the Sea of Galilee. And I want you to notice a couple of things, real quickly by way of review. In the book of Joshua, you have Israel crossing the Jordan, coming in and starting to conquer the lands. In the book of Judges, you have Israel in the land with pockets of enemies. For instance, if you'll notice, if you, if you may not be able to see this real clearly, but the Philistines occupy the southwest corner of Canaan, and that and is their name, they, they give it the name Palestine. Well, in the book of Judges, they leave these pockets of enemies who worship Baal and Asheroth, and it says it's going to corrupt you and it's going to influence you. And sure enough, it does. In the book of 1 Samuel, you have the time, the transition period, from the time where there are no kings in Israel till Samuel the prophet is going to bring on the first kings in Israel. Now, if we had to just break down what we have studied so far, it would go like this. First Samuel is a tra- tra- transitional book from Judges to Kings. And that is, um, the first king is about to be ordained in Israel, and it's going to be Samuel that's going to bring him on the scene. And to get up to where we are, to get up to snuff to where we are, look at this. The first chapter are the unusual circumstances around the birth of the prophet Samuel. Now keep that in mind, because we're talking now about a transition period. We're talking now about God bringing in a new era. He's going to do it through a prophet, through a godly man, who thinks his thoughts after him, and has his mind. In chapter 2, you have the unusual wickedness of the priests in Israel, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons. They're, they're contemptible men stealing the sacrifice, and they're sleeping with the women that are at the tent, work at the tent of the meeting of the temple, um, outside the temple, excuse me. In chapter 3, you've got the calling of Samuel into the ministry. Here you have the little boy, 12 years old, being called by the Lord to go into the ministry. In chapter 4, what we studied last week, you have the removal of Hophni and Phinehas, these wicked men. The ark is captured. Remember, the Philistines and Israel go to battle. And as they go to battle, um, something terrible transpires, and that is they lose. That is, Israel loses big. And after they lose big, they go, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do wrong? Uh Uh-oh, let's take the ark of the covenant with us. They go back into battle against the Philistines, this time carrying the ark of the covenant, and they get beat even worse. Some 30,000 people die. Well, um, it, it is really bad. Hophni and Phinehas die. Eli is there waiting to hear the news. When he hears about the ark being captured and his son's dying, he falls over backwards. He's a fat man and it breaks his neck and he dies. Phinehas, one of the wicked men here, his wife is pregnant. She goes into premature labor. She gives birth to a son. She dies. All this happens in the last chapter. is full of death and sorrow and trouble because people have turned away from God. Well, chapters uh, 5 and 6 then, God can take care of himself. King or no king, priest or no priest, he's getting, and, and that, that's a key movement, especially when you remember, a key point, especially when you remember the book goes from a transition from a theocracy to a monarchy. And God could have easily taken care of himself. You're about to see that. You want to see how? Well, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 5. Follow along as I read the first five verses. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. 
But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands were broken off, and they were laying, lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any of the others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So the story is this. The Philistines won the battle. They captured the ark. Everybody was miserable. They take the ark back down into one of their five prominent cities. On the southwest corner of Canaan was the land that the Philistines occupied. They had five chief cities. By the way, one of those cities, Gaza, do you remember what happened? Samson went into Dagon's temple. Do you remember what he did? After they plucked his eyes out and they made him into an animal, he says, give me my hands on each of the pillars of Dagon's temple. And you remember he pulled down the whole Dagon temple? you remember? That's what he did. Well, that happened in one of these five chief cities. Now, let me just show you so you can understand the map of what is going on. Here's sort of the blow-up of the map that we've been looking at. Here is Shiloh. Here's Ebenezer where the Philistines camped. The battle took place right in here, and they capture the ark. The text says they take it from here down to Ashdod. When they get it down to Ashdod, that's one of the five principal cities, and down in Ashdod, there here they are, and they put it in the temple where Dagon is worshipped, and they put it before Dagon. Now, what was it that they put in there? What was it they had captured? The Ark of the Covenant. Here is the Ark of the Covenant. It was about three and a half foot by two and a half foot. It had it was it was resembling the the presence of God. This later goes in the holy of holy places, and it, it for instance, there's a jar of manna in there. The Ten Commandments are in there, and this is a sort of a a, a miniature museum of remembering God, but it's also the sign of His presence. It's much more than just a museum. Now. That's the temple. That's the, what they had captured. They put this down in Dagon's temple. What do you think Dagon looked like? Well, the Philistines lived by the sea. And a lot of what they did was to get their um, income and their occupation was having to do with the fishing industry. So their god, Dagon, was a half fish, half man. That's what he looked like. Now, the text says that the first day they bring the Ark of the Covenant down, that, that they get up the next morning and Dagon has fallen prostrate before the, the Ark. As if this God were worshiping. And they were so embarrassed. And by the way, if you would be reading this, if you looked at verse 3 and you were a Hebrew reading this, you would have laughed out loud. And by the way, please understand that when Jesus came into town at Palm Sunday, they weren't going, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. They were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It, was, it wasn't the way Baptists usually worship. I, I have to admit, we're not quite right on this. It was with all of your heart and soul you were worshiping with everything in you. Well, the same thing is true here. When you would have read this passage, look at verse 3. Let me tell you where you would have laughed. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. You would have got a couple chuckles. But here's where everybody would have burst out laughing. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. What kind of God do you have to put back in his place? That's crazy. You have to put God back in his place? Now watch what happens the next morning. Look at verse 4. And the next morning he says, but the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands were broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now, by the way, here's his head and there's his hands. You can see them. Now, what is so interesting, by the way, if you want to understand the way they counted for corpses in battle, is they would cut off a hand or they would cut off the head. For instance, what does David do when he slays Goliath? Pulls off the Goliath's sword and chops off Goliath's head, Right? What did they do with Saul the king when Saul dies later on in the books of Samuel? They chop off his head. You see, this was customary. 
So what was being said here is even though the Philistines thought their God, Dagon, was greater than Yahweh of Israel, when the case, when it really comes down to it, they put him in Dagon's temple. The first day they find Dagon prostrate. The second day, his head and his hands are broken, signifying what? He is a loser compared to Yahweh. You see, that's the point. Now, um, look at verse 5. This would have even been more hysterical. There, the, the writer puts in a little commentary remark. Look what he says in verse 5. That is why to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The writer is, is being sarcastic here. He's going, ha, <laughs> do you believe it? Even to this day, they don't step on that one place where his head and his hands fell. They're still influenced by what happened. Ah, the chuckle. I see you guys don't get it, but they did. They liked it. All right? Now, watch what goes on and happens in verses 6 through 12. Follow along as I read verses 6 through 12. The text says this, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod in its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and they asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they move the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and they said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Well, nobody knows what to do with the God of Israel. They're lost here. Look what goes on. Here, here, here's, what's, here's, what's being, here's what's happening. The battle takes place here. They take it down to Ashdod, about 25 miles to the south. Ashdod has all of this breakout of tumors and afflictions and Dagon keeps falling over and gets the, his godness knocked out of him, you could say. And from Ashdod, it goes over to Gath or over, excuse me, to Gath. Gath gets there, the same thing happens, an outbreak of tumors and trouble. And from Gath, they take it to Ekron. Nobody wants it. In fact, you know what was probably happening? It was probably the bubonic plague. You know why? Look at chapter 6 and verse 5. Over in chapter 6 and verse 5, as the Philistines are trying to decide how to get rid of the ark, they say this, What verse 4, what guild offering should we send them? And they replied, we'll send five gold tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers. Everywhere was going on, most likely the scholars believe that the bubonic plague that is carried by rats, there was an infestation of rats, and everybody was getting sick, and they needed a, they needed a good doctor to try to help them there, and they couldn't get anyone to help them because they were being overwhelmed with this disease. And so they move it to Ashdod, they, wait, the vote of the council, let's get it out of here. And so they take it and they go to Gath. And they get to Gath, the same thing happens. They go, let's get it out of here. And so they take it to Ekron. And the people at Ekron, as it starts coming in, they're all getting sick. And they go, oh no, get them out of here. And nobody wants the Ark of the Covenant. All right? Now, I'll tell you, um, they are, are really are in trouble, but one thing is interesting. Look down, uh, or, or, or let's keep going then, in chapters um, 6, look at verse 1. It says, When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. A little interesting comment. It took them seven months to start learning this lesson. Obviously, God is afflicting us. What are we going to do? Well, after seven months, they say, hey, we've got to do something. We've got to get out of here. And in, in verse 2, if you read the language, they're very reverent. Hey, we've got to be careful. What should we do? How can we get the ark back into Israel carefully so he doesn't get any madder than he is? 
what should we do? Well, look at their plan in verses 3 through 6. Here's their plan. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why? Look at verse 6 now. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when he treated them harshly? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now, by the way, they have this plan. Here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll somehow please him by making these five gold tumors and five gold rats. But there was some opposition. Yeah, that's what verse 6 is about. Look what they say. Why do you harden your hearts? And they have a tremendous memory. They go back over 450 years, and they remember what happened when Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses and the plagues. They just kept getting worse. And he says, don't you remember what happened to Moses? It just kept getting worse. Why should we keep fighting? We're going to lose. You can't win against this God. Let's just give up. But somebody was arguing. Now, did you ever stop and think, who would be arguing? Who in the world would be arguing? Everywhere this thing goes, everywhere the Ark of the Covenant goes, there's this plague. The only people I could come up with it was probably the morticians and the gravedigger union. They didn't want it to leave, all right? Because business had never been better. Little, little joke, all right? <laughs> uh, you guys are a hard crowd to please today, all right? So, they send it on their way. Now, look at, listen to how their plan develops. Look at verses 7 through 12. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have been calves and that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves and away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way. But keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemeth, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but all this happened by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows, hitched them to the cart, and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart along with the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemeth, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemeth. Now, everybody, look on this map. Here's what's going on. On this map, here, I'll move it up a little bit. Here they've gone from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. And now, right through here, if you drew a line right about like that, that's the border of Israel. This is the Philistine territory. This is where Israel is. And there is this town, Beth Shemeth. Now, it's very, very interesting. Several things come out interesting. This, by the way, just to show you a little bit, give you a little more insight to the text, watch this. This is more of a geographical look of what it would have been like. Um, and if you'll notice, here we go, Ekron. And from Ekron, they, they take it down here to Beth Shemeth. So they have to go up over this mountains. The cattle have got to go up over this mountains and down into Beth Shemeth. And the way this worked, we know it's about the month of May or June because it's wheat harvest. And so what is going on is, Around the territories of the town, this side of the mountain, the wheat fields where wheat would grow, Israel would run that part of it, and the Philistines would run the wheat on this side. Well, here's this town, and I want to tell you what a scene this was. Here you have two cows that had just, just given birth, and their cattle are penned up, or excuse me, they're, they're I was going to say kittens, I know it's not that either, they're, um, um, they're babies, their babies are, they're calves, they're calves, that's what it is, their calves are penned up. And so there their calves are penned up and their calves are obviously crying out to these two mothers. Now, not only are they mothers, brand new mothers, but they have never pulled a cart before. 
And so it would have been like a horse that's never been ridden. It would have been awkward for them to pull the cart. Plus, their calves are calling to them continually. And so the Philistines have got this plan. Well, just to make sure that this is really God, just to make sure that He's really doing this, we will really make Him have to prove Himself. First off, there are many different roads that you can take, and many of them would loop back into Philistine territory. And plus, who wants to go up a mountain and down a mountain? That would be extra work for the calves. Plus, their calves for the cows. Their calves are penned up. And their calves are calling for them. But you notice what the text says? They put the five golden rats, the five golden tumors on the Ark of the Covenant. They, they hook up the cattle. And the five lords over the five Philistine cities, plus a host of people, are watching. And it says that those cattle went, they never took a wrong turn. Left or right, they went right into Israel and right towards Beth Shemeth. And get this, it says they were lowing all the way. Do you know what lowing all the way means? It means that they weren't going on their own will. They were wanting to go back with their calves the whole way. They're mooing or growling or whatever they would do to get back. They wanted to go back. And so they're going all the way. And the Philistine lords are going, well, see, some of them thought this isn't the Lord. This is just an accident. And they're watching and the whole way in. And they even come up. And by the way, just like they did many times, they're doing some little spine. It says they watch what happens when the when the ark gets down into Bethshemeth because here's a group of people out working and gathering wheat harvest. They stay up on these mountains and probably look down and watch. Just like they did when they crossed the Jordan River, and just like they had their spy networks, they're watching what's going on. And so, they go all the way down, and they bring it, and here, here now, here you've got all these workers, seven months the ark has been gone, Israel feels like they're defeated, many of them are pagan and worshiping false gods, they're far from God, but it not it interesting? The town that the cattle go to is Beth Shemeth. You may say, well, what's so interesting about that? If you studied the book of Joshua, you would remember that Beth Shemeth was one of the cities given to the Levites. So this was a Levitical town. Who had to handle the ark? Levites! And so God has it all worked out where the cattle take the, the, the right back into a Levite town. So there they are, and all the Philistines are watching. I just like to see this. They've been plagued, they've been beaten, they've been humbled. They say in the text, oh, we've got to do something to save Dagon. It even says that earlier. I mean, this was a proud pagan, and they have to give up. The God of Israel is too great for them. Give them up, and they're watching. And there he goes, right back into Beth Shemeth. So he goes then into Beth Shemeth, and watch what happens now, starting with verse 13. Look what happens. It says, now the people of Beth Shemeth were harvesting their wheat... In the valley, I already showed you the valley, there it is. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemeth, and it stopped before a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemeth offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five, get this, verse 16, the five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned the same day to Ekron. They're watching. They come down, there's great celebration. The Levites carefully get the ark down. They, they Right then, everyone stops. And they have a big revival worship service, you might want to say, right there in Beth Shemeth. And the Philistines go back realizing, boy, he is the God of Israel. Wow, look at what happened. He went right there and they stopped right there. Now, look at verse 17. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guild offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats were according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemeth. Now, before we go on, I think it's just interesting to note I don't know how much you can make of this, but it is interesting to note, what was the name of the man's field where the ark stopped? The ark stopped in a man's field by the name of Joshua. Now, isn't that interesting? 
Jehovah saves. Isn't it also interesting that the last book of victory in the Bible was the book of Joshua. The book of Judges, the saddest book of the Bible, is what says specifically in the first and second chapter, when all the elders that served with Joshua died off. And so, I think there's a little message being sent here. I get the feel. Joshua is showing, see, you could have had the victory all along. God still knows what he's doing. I'm not sure how far you go with that, but it's something to think about. But watch what happens next. You would not expect this to happen. The ark is back in Israel. Look what happens, verse 19. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemeth, putting 70 of them to death. Some of your Bibles say 50,070. That's probably wrong. A scribal error. It's 70. Most likely there wouldn't have been that many men in a little town like this. But anyway, he struck down 70 men, put them to death, and get this, the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemeth asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up from here? Now look at, they don't want it now. Now it's in Israel and they don't want it. What should we do? Let's call Kiriath Jerem. Hello, Kiriath Jerem, would you like the ark? Oh, you're kidding, you got the ark, yeah. So watch this, verse 21. They sent messengers to the people of Kiriath Jerem saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your, your place. Verse 1 of chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer's son to guard the ark of the Lord. What a sight. What a day it must have been in Israel. Sort of a miniature Palm Sunday in a way, you might say. Now, here's the question of the hour. And I, I don't mean to just drum you over the head with this till you can't stand it anymore, but, but I do want you to get the point. You may say, you know, Kim, I came to church to worship the Lord to get to know God better, hopefully to get instruction from His Word. And you're telling me stories about cows never that have just given birth that have never pulled a cart and tumors and rats and golden rats and, and uh, people out harvesting wheat 3,000 years ago. What in the world? What is this? I mean, I, what kind of church is this? See? Well, I, I tell you, that's a great question. All right? Because, listen, here's the question I want you to ask. What does all this have to do with me? What can I learn about God from this? Now, week after week, I've showed you these verses, and I don't know if we can ever wear out a verse of the Bible. We're coming close, maybe, but I don't know how you can wear it out. But look at, look at these verses. 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture was given by inspiration of God, and that it's profitable so that you can become thoroughly equipped in righteousness, so that you can be corrected and rebuked and instructed and trained. And Romans 15.4 says that everything that was written in the past was written to give you hope so that you could have endurance and perseverance in your Christian walk. Now I'm going to tell you, I can't believe that you have to uh, put pictures of Dave Letterman up there to make people want to go to church. I tell you, there are so much to learn. My heart gets filled. I can't hardly wait to get on to this next point of application because there is so much to say about the God that we serve. And the first thing I want you to see, I've already given it to you, the first principle is God can take care of Himself. Now listen, today everybody, listen. We may have replaced Hophni and Phineas with Jimmy Swaggart and Jimmy Baker. And we may say what the world looks at is they see contemptible, immoral men and they say, oh, that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. But I have got news for you. Even though there's Hophni and Phineases that are contemptible men that are wicked and everybody knew that they were sleeping with the women and everybody knew that they were stealing the sacrifice and everybody knew how, how rotten these priests that represented the God of Israel were, I want you to know that that doesn't affect God in one iota. He just keeps on going. And he says, 
I can still make unbelievers like the Philistines who mock me and think that their God, Dagon, is better than me. I can still humble them and bring them to their knees till they beg me to leave. And I can do it without anybody that's godly. You see, our God can take care of Himself. Now, the Scriptures do say, I agree, there's principle in Scripture that says things like this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God. And I do believe that we need to be the best examples we could be if anybody was to be a loving person. It should be a Christian who's tasted of the magnificent grace of God. If anyone who should be a gracious person, it should be a person who knows their sins have been forgiven sheerly by the grace of God. If anybody should be a kind-hearted person, it should be a person who have tasted the goodness of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody should be kinder. We should not be judgmental, nitpicking, wearing everybody out because they're not exactly like us type Christians. Not if we know the God of all grace. And so we should be this way. But let's face it, we're not, are we? And when we fail, the Almighty is not dependent on us. He can get along fine by Himself. People say, why did God create people? Oh, because He wanted fellowship. He was lonely. That's a bunch of baloney. The Almighty is self-sufficient, sovereign God. He can get along fine by Himself. And even when we fail, He takes care of Himself. He's not dependent on us. Please remember something else. This book, in regarding to God taking care of Himself, this book, what is it? It's the moving from a theocracy to what? A monarchy, remember? You know what's about to happen because I've read ahead. Any of you read ahead? They're going to ask for a king soon. They're going to ask for a king. I wanted to tell you, I believe God wanted to show Israel theocracy at its finest. Look it. I am the Almighty. I could deliver you. I can take care of you. I don't need anybody coming in there to save me. My ark can come out when I want it to come out. I can torture those Philistines if I want to. Something else. We have got so much today in Christian bookstores, on Christian television, on Christian radio, on Christian music, and it goes like this. And I don't mean to be picky toward my brothers and sisters in Christ because there is a side to it, but it goes like this. Somehow the words come out, you know, and we even got a church newsletter that's the greatest thing going, and it's called We Are His Hands, and so I'm not mocking that, but we are His hands, we are His voice, people won't know His love except through us. The meanings of Christian songs seem to come out like this. Somehow He needs us. Without us, His work won't get done. And there is a sense, obviously you've heard me preach and pound you and I've gotten you mad and frustrated because I've preached so much on personal responsibility and making sure you do your thing. But I want to tell you, in this chapter, listen now, in chapter 5, 4, 5, 6, 5, 7, 5, 9, 5, 11, chapter 6, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 9, it talks about the Lord's hand. And guess what? There's nobody there except the Lord's hand. And the Lord's hand can still bring about deliverance. Yes, He delights to use us. Yes, He wants to. But does He need to? Does He have to? No, he doesn't. In fact, somewhere around here, I had a piece of paper that someone handed me after the first service, and I'm not sure what I did with it now, but I'll tell you what it said. I wish I could find it. It was so well stated. But when Jesus Christ comes into the town, right there at the, at the Palm Sunday, guess what happens? All the people are praising him, and the Pharisees are all upset, and he goes along and he says like this, if I wanted to, the stones could rise up and praise me. See, God can bring praise from the stones of the earth. And somehow we've got our, we've got this anthropocentric center where here we are, man is at the center and God revolves around us and there he needs us, he wants us, he just was so upset without us. And the point is he does love us, he does need us, but I'm going to tell you we've beat that horse down to where Christians have forgotten the other side. And the side is he is a self-sufficient almighty God. I'm going to tell you, friends, listen, there were all kinds of planning meetings, I'm guessing, going on in Israel. There was a special deployment of forces. They had Ashdod's T-34 
temple all diagrammed. Now, we'll have ten men come in from this side, and then we're going to rescue the Ark of the Covenant. I guarantee you there was all kinds of, of spy networks going on in Israel. we got to get that Ark back. We can't let them have that Ark. And God says, look, I don't need any of those special deployment groups. I can come out of there when I want to come out of there. And guess how he does it? I'll have two Philistine cows pull me out. <laughs> you got to see it. It's a little bit funny. I can do that. He is the Almighty. We need to worship Him. Look, another principle. This is all about God. No one can control the Almighty. In chapter 4, Israel said, hey, we lost in battle. We'll control Him. We'll take His ark into battle. He'll have to show up. He's going to have to show up. We got Him for sure. God's going to have to show up. He won't let us lose now. We've got the good luck charm. Remember, rabbit foot theology. But I want you to see something. They couldn't control Him. God says, yeah, you'll lose and my prophecy will still come true. Hophni and Phinehas will die. The ark will be taken. Eli will die. I can still do all that. Well, guess what? In chapters 5 and 6, the Philistines think they can control God. They say, we're going to put him down there before Ashdod, before Dagon in the temple of Ashdod. And what happens? Ashdod worships Jehovah. And then what happens the next day? His arms and hands are broken off. And it, it, it goes like this. I hear it all the time on, 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 on TV and on radio and on, to where I can't stand anymore. And it goes like this. We can command God. You can name it and claim it. You can put certain things and have a certain amount of faith and you can demand and whatever you say, health, wealth, as he says, it's going to come your way because he has to obey you. And they even take a verse from Isaiah 45, 11 that says, command you me about the work of my hands. And they say, see, you can command the Almighty. Friends, I want to tell you something. When the church stops singing thou art worthy and starts singing thou art useful, we're in big trouble. When we start trying to use God, we're messing up big time. And I'm going to tell you, Isaiah 45, 11 does not tell us to command God. Here's what the text actually says. I am the Lord God Almighty. Are you going to command me about the works of my hands? That's what the text says. And the common thinking among the pagans, the Philistines, is God is dependent on man to sustain him. The reason that they had to worship with tremendous amount of immorality in the, in the temple of Baal and Asheroth and Dagon's temple. You know why? Because if they, if they showed all kinds of immorality, Dagon would see it and he would breed with the other fish and they would make sure they had a good crop of fish that year. And so you had to, you had to carouse your God. You had to, you had to get him, coax him into doing something for you. But this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't get coaxed into anything. He's not a helpless God that needs to be coddled and, and protected and sustained by his worshipers. No, not at all. God often teaches through pain. Now, here you see all these passages are filled with death. And I'm not going to take long here because I want to get to the last point in a minute. But, but I will tell you that these Philistines, did you notice what they responded to? They responded to pain and suffering, but they didn't respond to truth. Did you notice that? There's the heart of the pagan, by the way. Listen, you know what the Philistines said? What are we going to do with Yahweh? What are we going to do with Yahweh? Let's get Yahweh out of here. So Yahweh gets out of there. They set up a test to make sure that it was Yahweh that was punishing them. And when they see the, the, the cows lowing all the way, they never pulled a cart, go up over the mountains and down into Beth Shemeth, they all realized this had to be Yahweh, but never once did they say, let's turn and worship Him. All they wanted was deliverance from their pain. And friends, there's a gospel out there today that says, come to Jesus and be delivered from your pain. He'll make you a success. And you may not be coming a Christian if you come to that Jesus. Because you need to come to Jesus who will deliver you from your sins. And they still didn't want the truth. He also said something else, and this one's a little bit controversial. I don't want to spend too much time here, but God, does, God doesn't want his people to be lukewarm, apathetic, or indifferent towards him. You say, where do you get that point? Well, I, got it. I didn't come up with it myself. I got it from a scholar. And he makes the point that he thinks the reason the 70 men died is because they were indifferent and apathetic towards the Ark of the Covenant. And they just sort of walked up and casually go, oh, this is the Ark that, that got out. And they just sort of casually got it. And God, God says, I'm holy even among my own people. 
But the point I really want to dwell on, and I'll close with this point, my last one, is this. God surely teaches us in these passages about fearing Him. Listen, look at verse 20 in your Bibles of chapter 6 and listen to the New English Bible's translation. Listen to what it says. No one is safe in the presence of the Lord, this holy God. To whom can we send Him? Hey, everybody, do you know who's saying that? God's covenant people. These are Israelites. Guess what he is saying here? Guess what they're saying? It, no one is safe in the presence of the Lord, this holy God. To whom can we send Him? If you read Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah says this. They, they, they're begging Isaiah, stop prophesying. And here's what they say. Prophesy illusions. Tell us pleasant things. And stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Now friends, are you listening? The people of Israel actually beg to be delivered from the very God they say they want to serve. Now I want to ask you a question. Maybe you've been serving a wrong God your whole life. Have you been serving a God that's easy to live with? Have you been serving a God that makes you comfortable? Have you been having a relationship with God where you're trying to use Him to make sure that you can pull the right strings to get Him to bless you just the way you want so that you can live life your way with His blessing? I'm going to tell you, friends, the reason you see the story 70 men in Israel die when they take a casual look into the ark. You sit there and you go, why would that happen? I don't understand. That doesn't seem right. What is the point? The point is to shake you up that the God that we know is an awesome and holy God. And we sing songs, and I'm not mocking this song, but it says when He made the stars, He wasn't putting on the rents. Our God is an awesome God. I wonder if we really know what we're singing about and talking about. How powerful, how great is the Almighty. You see, today we live... We want to be comfortable. We want to be, we want a God that's useful. We want a God that's pragmatic. We want a God that does things just the way we want to. We don't really have time for a God that's going to kill 70 of our men because they, they take a casual look into the ark. Well, what are we going to do with him? Well, do you think this ever happened again? Listen, you ever heard of the Gerasenes? They were afraid of the power of Jesus. There was the Gesenaret maniac. He'd been running around cutting people, slicing people, running around nude his whole life. A maniac, a wild maniac. And he meets Jesus and he casts the demons out of the men of the pigs and the pigs run over into the cliff. And there's a man seated, clothed, and in his right mind and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people from the town come out and meet the Savior that did that to such a man. And they beg Jesus, please leave, please leave. We don't want you around here. I'm wondering in some of our churches if the Lord Jesus actually came and took control and we actually taught the Word the way it's supposed to be taught, how many people would really still want to stay because maybe they find out they don't love the Jesus of the Bible who calls us to be holy and He won't conform to our easygoing expectation of who He is. One man wrote this, Our culture does not help us to smash our graven image of a casual, easygoing God. Our culture proclaims that God must be the essence of tolerance. He is a chummy rather than a holy man. He is a chummy rather than holy. He is the man upstairs rather than the, the holy almighty. He goes on to say this, listen, so long as our novelty license plates declare that God is my co-pilot, we can be sure that we have not seen the king, the Yahweh of hosts. As Jonathan Edwards noted, it is the absence of godly fear that signifies a lack of the knowledge of God. We need to share half the attitude of the people of Beth Shemeth. There is a sense in which it is dangerous to be in the presence of God. But we must not want Him to go away from us. We must regard His presence as our supreme joy and at the same time our supreme peril. This does not mean we cannot be intimate with God. It means we cannot become familiar with Him. Intimacy is able to call Him Father and tremble at the same time. Friends, I'll tell you. 
I hear so much today among Christian music and in Christian books and in Christian radio and television, you hear this, and I'm telling you, I've got to, I've got to be honest with you, I'm probably wrong. And, and I do think that some of the, the people that would probably make me sick could be a blessing to you. Somehow God is bigger than my opinion. I agree to all that. But I've got to just tell you, I just hear this over. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. You know, he's faithful, 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 faithful. He's unconditional, unconditional. He's going to prosper. He wants to bless your socks off you. He just wants to do this, wants to do this, wants to do that. Oh, he just loves you. Just no matter what you've done, you're just okay. Just who you are. He just loves you. Well, let me just ask you a question. These 70 men from Beth Shemeth that took a casual look into the ark, did he love them just the way they were? Did he? They were struck dead. And what did that do to the rest of the people? It sent fear throughout. And, and, and you know me. I hope you would know me. I would never say we could even begin to know the love of God. It's too great. And I would tell you, we, we, we never even begin to know the, 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 the power of, of, uh, of the, the sustaining faithfulness of the Almighty towards us. We would never be able to wear them out. It is greater than we could ever know. You've heard the saying, who do you think you are, God? I feel like saying sometimes to people, who do you think you're worshiping, man? Because let's just take a look. The whole story has not been told. Not in our day. John chapter 1. Here's John the Apostle who once leaned his head on Jesus' bosom, was one of the inner circle of three. He sees the resurrected and exalted Jesus Christ. He's justified. He's sanctified. He's John. I mean, come on. And what happens? He sees the Lord and he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. He is trembling before the presence of the risen Christ. Have we ever done that? How about Isaiah? He, you know the story. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he say? Does he go, oh, he loves me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he falls down on his face and he says, woe is me, I'm a man undone and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He says, thou art worthy and I'm unworthy. We get a glimpse of God. I wonder why is American Christianity so shallow because we've, we've only talked about the one side till we've worn our ears off because we don't even move us anymore to hear about his love because we don't know of his greatness and his awesome power. We don't know about how holy he is. We don't know about how fantastically great he is. Peter, in the book of Luke, sees Christ do a miracle after Peter thought he was a fisherman and knew all about fishing. He sees Christ do a miracle and all Peter can do is sit there and beg Jesus, depart from me, I'm a wicked man. Noah. Listen to what it says about Noah. He was moved with fear and he built the ark. You say, come on, Kim, let's go New Testament. I did. I, I said Peter, and the verse I just quoted was from Hebrews. Well, you know what Acts 9.31 says? The church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We've just got this idea, oh, I can do whatever I want. God loves me unconditionally. Does it really matter if I'm serious about my Christian life? Friends, 70 men took a casual look into the ark and were stricken dead as the ark enters Israel. And you better stop and ask yourself, if you are just casual or familiar with the Almighty, maybe you better stop back and say, do I really know such a God as this that throws the stars into space? Billions upon billions upon billions. And the text says He made the stars also. John Murray says, it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. Flavel, in his Mystery of Providence, says, get the true fear of God upon your hearts. Be really afraid of offending Him. God will not hide His mind from such a soul. 
The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. He will show them His covenant. That's Psalm 25, 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. Charles Spurgeon said, Do you tremble before God? There is something in that. I do not ask you whether you tremble at hell. That would be no sign of grace. For what thief would not tremble at the gallows? I do not ask you if you are afraid of death. What mortal man is not, unless he has a good hope through grace? But do you tremble in the presence of God because you have offended Him? And do you tremble in the presence of sin lest you should again offend Him? Does it ever come over you thus, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Sinclair Ferguson writes, we are to fear Him, that is, in other words, we are to cherish an awful sense of His infinite grandeur and excellence corresponding to the revelation He has made of these in His works and word including the conviction that His favor is the greatest of all blessings and His disapproval the greatest of all evils. And nothing can be more significant than the characteristics of the New Testament church, which I've already mentioned to you. says John Murray again. So the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit has been multiplied. I'll tell you, it may not be, and I really mean this because I have to test this because I, I hunger for this church to grow. But it may not be that this church grows if we hold the teaching about the true God of the Bible. Because there may be a day in America where many people will say, prophesy illusions, tell us pleasant things, but stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Let us pray. Our Father, we just take a moment to be quiet before You for Your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts as we sit here. Let's stand together and sing, I love you, Lord. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic recorded messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.